One day I lost my way, but no one cared. Searched for happiness, but found despair. Then Jesus spoke to me, revealed to me. may enter in. A broken heart I gave, a worthless thing, an empty life was all that I could bring. Then Jesus filled my life with love divine he healed my broken heart and now i know he's mine have you been wandering while you're alone does god seem far away you doubt his love. Now Christ is at the door. He sees a heart that's torn. His blood was shed for you to give your life anew. A broken heart I gave. A worthless thing, an empty life was all that I could bring. Then Jesus filled my life with love divine. He healed my broken heart and now. I know he's mine. Thank you, Vance. If you have your Bible, open it up to Psalm 119. Grateful that you are here this morning, and I'm glad to be here. So it's a great week, and uh, always look forward to Sunday, and always look forward to seeing you. Uh, it's always such an encouragement to be with God's people, and uh, I don't know about you anyway, it's, it's the highlight of my weeks, uh, uh, honestly, Wednesdays, and I mean, I was a little sad, we didn't have church this Wednesday because of Thanksgiving, I mean, I wasn't sad because we didn't, because we had Thanksgiving, don't hear me, I mean, I'm, I like Thanksgiving, but uh, I was a little sad we didn't meet Thursday, my, my little Wednesday night group that we, we normally meet together and study God's Word and spend time in prayer, it's such an encouragement uh, and if you haven't experienced that time, uh, we want to invite you, by the way, to be a part of our, our, our Wednesday night. It's not like we sit back there and pray for an hour, though we could. Uh, uh, we, we study, we have Bible study. And we've been going through uh, the uh, war room Bible study, studying prayer and how important prayer is. And uh, just uh, want to invite you to that Wednesday nights at 6. It's it is a great time of encouragement. Of course, Sundays, I always look forward to Sunday as well. Psalm 119, 
uh, is what we're looking at this morning again, verses 161 to 168. Let me ask you, what is it that you hold in your heart as an item of value? What, 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 is, it, what is it that you treasure in your life? I mean, on the, on the earth. Like I, know, I know in church we want to be spiritual, right? Or like a, a Bible, God, Jesus, salvation, and those are things that we should treasure. I don't want to be uh, facetious about that, but there are surely some things on this earth that we treasure, some things that hold a special place in our heart, and a lot of times those things don't even really have meaning to anybody else but to us, right? I've got a guitar that was my grandfather's. It's, a, it's an old uh, Gibson guitar. Um, I don't play it. It was given to me because I'm the only one in the family that plays guitar like he played guitar. Uh, I don't play guitar like he played guitar. He was very talented, but uh, I'm the only one who actually can still can play the guitar. Anyway, it was given to me, and, and uh, I rarely take it out of its case for a couple of reasons. Number one, it's actually quite valuable. It's, it's an old guitar, and I'm always afraid I'm going to break it, and I'm going to have to call my mom. and like, well, I broke the Gibson, sorry. And uh, that would be a horrible phone call to make. I was just playing, play, I wasn't playing with the guitar, I was playing the guitar. But uh, so I'd, I'd, for that, and then this is kind of a silly reason, but maybe you can relate to it. It smells like my grandparents' house. And uh, I'm afraid the more I take it out and use it, the, I'm going to lose that smell. And there's just something, it's a real treasure to open up that guitar case every once in a while, and, and I'll put it on and I'll play it a little bit and just smell that, that smell of there. And it was a good smell. Um, I don't know how to describe it. It's just, it's a very, it's a very unique smell and I can smell it and, and I miss that and it kind of makes me reminiscent uh, and nostalgic about some things. I asked my wife about what she treasured and I thought maybe it would be like her wedding ring or something like that. And uh, get this, and I wish she was here to, to, uh, to share with this. Uh, she's helping somebody right now, but uh, she said a coffee cup. And I was like, okay, that's kind of weird. And, and she said, well, you know, not just a coffee cup. She said, a coffee cup, because we kind of have this routine. Where we get up about 5 o'clock in the morning, we fix lunches, we fix breakfast, and then she and I sit down and we have about 30 minutes that we drink coffee and just visit. And then at the end of the day, she'll send me a text that says she's on her way home, and I'll say, we have this little thing also, I'll say, is it 5 a.m. somewhere? And uh, so 5 a.m. somewhere means it's coffee time, and we'll, we'll sit and we'll drink coffee and no kids are allowed, we shoo them away, and, and it's just our special little time together. And so she looks at a, at a coffee cup, and she, she has a special little treasure in her heart about that coffee, that coffee time. What is it that you treasure? Maybe a family heirloom, maybe a piece of furniture, uh, something that's been handed down for generations and generations. Uh, some of you may actually have actual treasures. You've got like gold hidden away. Maybe you buried it in the backyard, I don't know. Maybe you drew up a little treasure map, I don't know. But more than likely, we all have something of the earthly nature that we treasure. There was a guy named Rob Cutshaw. He was a rock hound, and uh, he owned a little uh, roadside shop outside of uh, Andrews, North Carolina, and he would hunt for rocks. So that was just kind of what he did, and the rocks he found, he would try to sell at that little roadside shop, and he made a little bit of a living, not much of one, off of selling those rocks, and he would do other things to try to meet, uh, make ends meet from, from month to month. And of course, he enjoyed his work, and, and uh, he, he, uh, he did it. For 20 years, he dug up rocks. And one day, Rob found a rock he described simply as purdy and big. And he tried unsuccessfully, and it was a big rock. It, it, uh, it weighed about, uh, about a pound. That's pretty heavy for a rock, and it was blue. 
He didn't know what it was, but he tried uh, for many years to try to sell that. He tried to get about $500 or $300, just what he could, and he could never sell the thing. He knew it was worth more than just a, a pocket full of change or whatnot, but he just could never figure out how much exactly it was worth, and so he put it under his bed, and for several years it would be between his bed or his closet until he finally found someone that knew what it was. And what it was, was it eventually became known as the Star of David Sapphire, weighing nearly a pound, and it was worth $2.75 million. You see, sometimes we don't even realize what treasures we hold in our hands. You get that? The point is, we need to understand what treasure we actually hold in our hands. This morning, as we look at Psalm 119, we're going to address the great treasure that God's Word truly is. Now, we've kind of skirted around this word. You know, God's Word is a treasure. Okay, we get that. But we've not really dug into what it means for God's Word to be a treasure in our hearts. And here's what I've been thinking about this week as I've been reading through this and studying and preparing. And, and it's that in the same way that we have those earthly treasures, those things like my guitar, my wife's coffee cup, our coffee time, whatever you're thinking of as you think about a treasure, that's kind of the same mindset or attitude we should have towards God's Word. When I asked my wife about that treasure of that coffee cup or that time together, I asked her, so what is your attitude about that, about that time or about that coffee cup? She said, well, because it's a treasure, she protects it. She tries to keep anything from disrupting it. Uh, she gets unhappy if somebody was to break that coffee cup. When she looks at the coffee cup, she gets happy thoughts. She rejoices. She has joy because of it. Uh, the, the, does that sound kind of like what you feel about whatever earthly treasure you're thinking about? You think that you, you protect it, you try to safeguard against it. When you look at it, you have fond memories or happy thoughts, you rejoice about it. Maybe you would also say that, that treasure is priceless. Oh, somebody could have put a price on it, but it isn't really, in, it, it's not a price you would ever give up for it. You know, on the other hand, I told you about that, that guitar from my grandfather. I also was given a piano that was in their house as well really no sentimental value, and when we sold our house in Belton, the lady who went through it, to buy, she was going to buy our house, she said, you wouldn't by chance want to sell that piano, and we said, make us an offer, <laughs> and so that was not a priceless little treasure, I don't think I'd ever sell that guitar. Now, what strikes me about this passage in verse 161 through verse 168 are the attitudes that the psalmist has towards the word of God, and to be honest, some of these words are not new. We've spoken before about the joy that God's Word brings. We've spoken before about the hope that God's Word brings. But I want us to consider the attitude adjustment in our hearts and minds that must occur for God's Word to become the treasure it should be in our lives. And, and, and again, we don't need to use that word half-heartedly. What, what does it really mean for God's Word to be a treasure in our lives? Do we, do we treasure it? It's a book. Okay? And we don't want to mistake what I'm talking about. I'm not talking about your, your black leather bound, red letter, family login Bible book. I'm talking about the words that are a written revelation from God himself. Okay, This, this book itself, that's not the treasure. What it contains is the treasure. And what do we have to do? What, what mindset or heart 
attitude do we need to get shifted in order we start seeing this as the treasure it should be and not just some words we read? What kind of change needs to occur? Well, let's, let's read verses 161 through 168. He says, Princes persecute me without a cause, but my heart stands in awe of your word. I rejoice at your word as one who finds great treasure. I hate Nabor lying, but I love your law. Seven times a day I praise you because of your righteous judgment. Great peace have those who love your law, and nothing causes them to stumble. Lord, I hope for your salvation, and I do your commandments. My soul keeps your testimonies, and I love them exceedingly. I keep your precepts and your testimonies, for all my ways are before you. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the treasure it is. Lord, would you just, would you help us see with the eyes of our heart truly what a great treasure we hold in our hand. Lord, would you help me to value it as I should and change my attitude, change my heart and mind in the, in the way that needs to happen, that I would start seeing your word as a treasure. Father, it's in your name I pray, Jesus. Amen. Now, and it's in verse 162, he uses that word, great treasure, and that's really where I get this, this thought, this this thought of what God's word is to us. He says, I rejoice at your word as one who finds great treasure. But frankly, what I see in these eight verses are seven attitudes that he has. Seven attitudes that he has towards God's word. And really these attitudes are a reflection of a much deeper attitude of love that he has for God's word. You see, because he loves God's word, he has of a byproduct effect in his life. And so really the, the, the back-ended question of the scripture is, do I really love God's word? And that love for God's word, is it creating these kind of byproducts or these attitude adjustments, if you will? And, and maybe that's what we really need this morning is an, an attitude adjustment, adjustment. Is God's word a treasure to us? Because the things that are a treasure to us are that way because we love them. Do we love God's Word? Do we love what it means to us, what it does to us, what it teaches us? Well, the first attitude that I see is one of all, he says in verse 161. He says that the princes that persecute him, they don't, they don't scare him. That word all is a word that means fear or respect. And even though they persecute him without cause, which means he didn't do anything to deserve it, but deserve's got nothing to do with it. What this is, is, is it's, it's kind of like a big bully. If you remember being a, a school student, right? Did anybody ever have to deal with bullies? Believe it or not, I was not the bully. Bullies and persecutors commit their actions generally because of their own personal insecurity. They fear, and therefore they want you to fear. They lack control, and they want to control you. But the psalmist says, I'll not be intimidated. I will not be in awe of these princes that are persecuting me without cause. Instead, I will only be intimidated or in awe of God's word. What are we intimidated by? 
Maybe we're not being persecuted by a prince, but is there any particular celebrity that we are perhaps intimidated by? And that word all, is, it can mean just like that. It can be, mean intimidated, to be intimidated by. You may be saying, well, I, there's, there's no celebrity I, I'm intimidated by. What if old President Trump walked through those doors right now? Isn't there just a little bit of you that would be kind of intimidated? All the Secret Service agents, you know, kind of fanning out and checking us all out. That would be kind of intimidating. I think about uh, if the president of my uh, seminary, Paige Patterson, walked in right now and sat back there on the back row. He's quite a preacher. I might be a little... Yeah, a little uneasy about my message. I'll, I'll be, I suddenly would start thinking about, did I parse that Hebrew correctly? I don't, I don't know. I sure would hate to get an email from him later. Could you please remove that you went to Southwestern from your, from your, from your, uh, your profile? There are people that intimidate us. And what the psalmist is saying is that no matter who or no matter what, I will not be in awe of them. I will be in awe of God's Word. That's an attitude that we need to have of God's Word. And we will have that attitude if we love God's Word. The second one is this, is that he's filled with joy. Verse 162, he says, I rejoice at your Word. He's filled with joy. When you think about your treasure, your earthly treasure, aren't you filled with joy? I talked about how my wife, she'll look at that coffee cup, she'll think about our time together. Yeah, we're, we're still mushy, mushy, that kind of, and I'm fine with that. 19 years, absolutely. Are we not filled with joy? Don't we have kind of happy thoughts when we think about that treasure of ours? The psalmist says, God's word is such a treasure that he is filled with joy because of it. He's rejoicing because of it. The reason so many people miss out on joy is because joy is all about contentment, about being satisfied. And then Unfortunately, so many are trying to find contentment and satisfaction in a bevy of things that were never meant to satisfy us or bring us joy. And that's the true measure of a treasure, by the way. Does it really fill you with some sense of joy? You see, that guitar is not really the treasure. It's the memories that it brings back. It's the thoughts. It's remembering the good things about my grandfather and his good qualities. The, the fact that he sang for the Lord when he did sing. If something is truly a treasure to you, then you don't go looking for a better treasure. That's what God's Word needs to be for us. It gives us all the satisfaction, the joy we could ever need. The attitude adjustment we may need to see God's Word as a treasure may be one of finding joy in its book. Not this literal book, but the words that God has revealed to us. What are some words in God's Bible that bring joy to your heart? I, there's a lot. I mean, we could quote Scripture all day to one another probably, right? I mean, just the simple childhood verse, John 3.16, God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. Isn't that a joyful, contentment kind of verse? That verse I shared with the kids, Matthew 6.33, that's always been a wonderful promise. I, God has always brought to my mind during those kind of downtrodden moments. And we all have those moments. I worry about this, I worry about that. And he says, don't worry, seek me first in my righteousness and I'm going to take care of everything. Thank you, God. That brings a lot of joy to 
my heart. Is there a, a, a scripture that brings you joy? If, if so, I would encourage you to write it down. Make it a memory verse. Uh, our memory verse this week, 1 Chronicles 16, 34. And I just went blank. <laughs> Give thanks to the Lord, for He is good, and His steadfast love endures forever. Isn't that a, isn't that a joy-filled verse? There's so many like that, that should bring an attitude of joy. In a, in a life that needs some joy, frankly. Number three, hating that which steals the treasure. In verse 163, he says, I hate and abhor lying. He hates lying. Well, that's good. I don't like lying either. You probably don't either. But what does this have to do with treasuring God's word? More uh, specifically, what does it have to do with hating that which steals the treasure? Well, the psalmist mentions in verse 163 that that uh, that. He hates lying. Some of your versions say a falsehood. Now, thinking about God's word, what is, what is it above all else? It is truth. In fact, it is absolute truth. Whereas everybody else will say, well, this is a truth and that is a truth. We can say with, I can say anyway, uh, with much conviction that what we hold in our hands is the absolute word, the truth of God. The entirety of God's word is truth. That's a that's something that we looked at last week, in fact. Verse 160, it ended with that truth. The entirety of your word, God, is truth. What stands in conflict to truth but lies, falsehoods? Not one part of this is a fallacy. Not one part of this is a fairy tale. It is all and completely a truth. And the thing that opposes that truth is falsehood or deceptions and lies. And so we are not actually talking about telling a fib that he hates. The lie in most cases has to do with the reality of our sin. And this has been the issue from the beginning. What did that serpent say to Eve? God will surely not kill you if you eat the fruit. That was a deception. In other words, the deception was it's not a sin. Or it's okay to commit the sin. God's okay if you commit the sin. God won't be mad if you commit commit the sin. And so the sins that we commit, often we do because we're convinced it's okay. It's okay to harbor resentment and unforgiveness. They did something really horrible. It's okay to commit that lewd act. You deserve it. It's okay to speak hatefully because they hurt your feelings. It's okay to be self-centered. Today is supposed to be all about you. And on and on, the deceptions flow right out of our minds and our flesh, convincing us of falsehoods against the purity and sanctity of God's Word. And so the attitude adjustment we may need may be one of hating that which wants to steal away the treasure of God's Word, that which stands in conflict and in opposition to the truthfulness of God's Word. You're saying, flesh, that this is okay, but God's Word says it's not okay. You know, we shouldn't hate, except hate for sin. And it is a holy hate. So maybe that's the attitude. God, may your love, or may the love for your word give me a holy hate for sin. A holy hate for deception. A holy hate for the fraud that says certain sins are okay. Number four is that we need a heart that is completely pleased by it. An attitude adjustment that says, I'm not pleased by anything else but God's word. 
Now, in the Bible, in the, in the Scripture, he says, seven times a day I praise you because of your righteous judgments. I don't think that's a literal seven times. It's not like you can't praise him more than seven times or you have to praise him exactly. It's not like God is going to say, that was only five, Brian. you got to praise me two more times. I've always been told seven is a very special number in the Bible, and, and indeed it is. Generally, the, the number seven is a, a representative of completeness or perfection. It's supposed to be God's favorite number. Now, there's not a Bible verse in the Bible. Maybe it's in the book of Hezekiah. That's not a real book of the Bible, by the way. It, maybe it says, and God's favorite number is seven. That's just things that preachers say. But there is something special to the number seven. Because we get this sense several times that it's used, that it's a number that means unending or completeness or perfection. And so if you start thinking about this idea, seven times a day I praise you. What, what is he saying exactly? A, a heart that treasures the word of God will praise the Lord unending. He will praise the Lord completely. And a heart that praises the Lord completely is a heart that is pleased by the Word of God. You might think that sounds kind of funny to say that we need to be pleased by something. And I'm certainly not trying to make it sound like uh, the, the goal, or certainly not the goal of God's Word. Or God's goal is to make me happy. But think about it. You praise what you are pleased by. If you go eat at a restaurant, don't you sing its praises? If, if this sermon hits a note, won't you go home and tell somebody about it? Maybe you'll tell the Lord about it. If a song pleases you, don't you sing it all the louder? Or maybe tell Vance, boy, I really liked that song this morning. John Piper, a pastor and author, made this statement quite famous many years ago. He said, God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in Him. And it's not a matter of God going out of his way to make us happy. That's, that's not what I mean. That's not what Piper means by being satisfied. We are not the pinnacle of his pleasure. He is. And so instead to be satisfied means that we are satisfied by whatever God gives us, whatever God offers us. He is a glorious, peace-giving, grace-granting, uh, loving God. His love and his mercy have no end to it. That in itself should be what pleases us. And His desire is to save us, to love us, and to offer us a supreme joy that exceeds any other joy that we could ever experience this side of heaven. We can experience it right here and now. And it doesn't look like necessarily what our human minds want it to look like. We need to learn to be fulfilled and pleased and satisfied by God by His Word, and as a result, we will sing His praises. The attitude adjustment we might need is one of being pleased by God in His Word. And it's promises. Number five, an attitude of peace. This peace is a spiritual peace that is really undefinable by mankind. That's why Scripture says a peace that passes all understanding. This peace in the biblical language is defined by using such words as friend, favor, greetings, health, welfare, and prosperity. Peace, prosperity. So if I treasure God's word, does that mean I'll be prosperous? Well, yes. 
and no. Not in a way that we perhaps think. This is not a prosperity gospel by any means of the imagination. Well, it is, but, but hear me out. Let me explain. You see, the most prosperous we will ever be is the spiritual prosperity that is a result of being saved by Jesus Christ through Jesus Christ. That is the most prosperous thing we will ever experience. There is nothing more prosperous than that. Oh, the earth might offer us riches untold, but there is nothing like the salvation we are given through Jesus Christ. There is nothing you could offer me to give it up. You could wave a check in my face for a gazillion dollars, and I'd tell you, no thanks. I'll choose Jesus every day of the week and twice on Sunday. That is the most prosperous thing that I can ever experience. But unfortunately, there is a world of people, and sometimes churches filled with people trying to find the peace of God in all sorts of other things. They're trying to find prosperity, that feeling of prosperity, in all sorts of other things. But that feeling of prosperity, of peace, it's actually a byproduct of loving God's Word. That's what, the, that's what the psalmist actually says. Great peace have those who love your law. Don't you want peace? We live, we live in tumultuous times, don't we? We never know when the next tragedy is going to strike. And to be able to say that we can experience peace in the midst of that tragedy, that's quite a bold claim, isn't it? That's exactly what God's Word promises. Love God's Word, and you will have peace. And that's what Jesus promises too, isn't it? John 16, 33. And I've quoted that so many times during this series in Psalm 119. You, maybe you have it memorized by now. He says, in this world you will have troubles, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. You want peace? It is found in God's Word. Isn't that interesting that Christ is called the Word of God? That's not an accident. That's not a coincidence. Number six, having hope in God's salvation. It's talking about a surety of what God promises. Verse 166 talks about this hope that the psalmist has. Now, we've talked about this word a number of times. This hope is not like the word, the hope that America or we use here in 2017 uh, our, our I hope in our modern usage usually refers to wishful thinking. I hope my wife makes a carrot cake, right? That's wishful thinking. I, I hope the Dallas Cowboys can turn it around. That's wishful thinking. I hope I win the lottery. That's wishful thinking. These are wishes, but the biblical use of this word has to do with waiting and believing. One commentary states that hope in the Bible means to patiently await a known or faith-filled event. Another commentary states that hope is the confident expectation that something will occur. I hope Jesus returns. I hope Jesus calls His church home. These are not wishful thinking. I don't hope in the sense that it may not happen. I hope in the sense that I wait with a confident expectation. I hope for your salvation. When the psalmist says this, is a reference 
to his confident and, and patient expectation that the salvation of the Lord will come. The Lord will deliver us. He will deliver us from this planet at some point. He will carry us to heaven. If we have trusted Jesus as our Savior and Lord, He will not leave us to perish in hell. This is not a wishful thought. It is confident expectation. Why do we doubt this? Why do some doubt this? Why do some not have this type of biblical hope we're referring to in the surety of our salvation? It's because we do not treasure the Word of God. We do not love God's Word sense that it gives us that hope. They might treasure a date they said a prayer. They might treasure a date they've written in the inside of their Bible, a, a date they walked forward and, and prayed with brother so-and-so. But that will not give you the confident expectation of salvation. It is only when you hope in God's Word, and love God's Word, and treasure God's Word that it gives you a hope that will not dis- extinguish. Why does God's Word give me a hope for salvation? Because in it I have seen the physical manifestation of God's faithfulness to me. Because as I read it, His Holy Spirit inspires my faith. As I study His inspired Word, that same Holy Spirit reminds me of my salvation and it fuels my faith and it fuels my hope. That's why God's Word gives me a hope in salvation. And finally, the final attitude is an attitude of keeping it and keeping it. In the final two verses, he uses the same two Hebrew words. In verse 167, he says, My soul keeps your testimonies. In verse 168, he says, I keep your precepts. It's the same Hebrew word, keeping or being kept, but they have different meanings. In verse 167, it's a reference to the actual act of guarding something, keeping something, holding something near and dear. What, what did we study back in verse 11 of Psalm 119? I have hidden or treasured, is how that word should really tra- translate, I have treasured your word in my heart. That's the keeping of God's word, not bodyguard keeping it so that uh, nobody else gets it, but bodyguard keeping it so that it is not stolen away by sin, by objectionable behavior, by falsehoods, by deception. I have treasured or hidden your word in my heart. We hide it, not that no one else sees it, but we hide it so that we keep it near to us. Like that coffee cup, like that guitar, whatever treasure you're thinking about when I talk about earthly treasures, what do you do to keep it safe? Not that no one else knows about it, or maybe nobody else knows about it, but but that it is kept in a safe place and not stolen away from you. And then the second use, verse 168, this keep is a reference to the doing of the commands of God's Word. Verse 167 is a reference to keeping the Word of God in our heart. Verse 168, it's all about action. Because you can treasure something all day long. You can get warm fuzzies all day long. But until we become doers of the Word of God, we are not truly treasuring it. Because God's Word is not a treasure we're supposed to keep hidden away. Because as verse 11 continues, he says, I have treasured your Word in my heart. Why? That I may not sin against you. So we're called to keep it. We're called to keep it. Keep it in that keeping it in our hearts. And keep it in that being a doer of the Word of the Lord. 
Well, now what? Why is this important? Why or how do we respond? Well, we need to change our attitudes about God's Word. We need to begin treasuring it with our whole hearts, realizing the most valuable treasure that we can ever find is the treasure of God's Word. But here's a problem. It sounds like I'm just saying, okay, let's pray. You go home and change your attitude. Or maybe I'm saying it like this, okay, just try harder. But see, the problem is we cannot do this on our own. On our own, we will not have a good attitude ever towards God's Word. We will not have a good attitude towards the things of God. We need an attitude adjustment. We must have grace. And if you look back over this list I've given you, you'll realize that most of these attitudes, joy, peace, hope, are actually fruits or gifts of the Holy Spirit. And I would make an argument that the ability to hate that which stands in opposition to God's Word or hating sin and hating falsehood with a holy hate, that in itself is a gift from the Holy Spirit. Having the proper awe of God, the respect that He deserves or His Word, definitely keeping God's Word, these are also fruits or spiritual gifts given to us from the Holy Spirit. They are the byproduct of love, of loving God, but more importantly, of God's love in us. What are we taught in 1 John? We love Him because He first loved us. We need an attitude adjustment. We need His grace. We need His love. We need Him. We need more of Him. Am I not treasuring God's Word? I need more of Him. I need more of His grace. I need more of His love. And the only requirement of me is that I simply open myself up to Him. And so the warm, fuzzy, human-manufactured love is not the key, but as always, it is the love of God being poured out on mankind. And He has been pouring out His love on mankind since the beginning of history. And that love is realized and revealed in the biggest way to humanity at Calvary. And so the answer to the question is not try harder. The answer to the question is not go home and try to manufacture an attitude adjustment. The answer is that we must have more love from God through the inner working of the Holy Spirit motivating us to love God back and to love His Word. Do you have the love of God in you? Do you have the Holy Spirit motivating you? If not, then there's two things you need to do, or one of two things you need to do. If you have been born again, if you are a born-again believer in Jesus Christ, then the attitude problem may be because you have unconfessed sin that you are harboring in your heart. Doing this quenches the work of the Holy Spirit. And we need the grace of God. He is still there. And through His grace, He will hear you when you confess that sin and turn your back on that sin and turn back to the Lord and say, Holy Spirit, fill me. Take the, or take the sin and restore to me the righteousness of Christ. Repent from it, meaning we turn away from it and turn back to God. Or... If you have never received Christ as Savior and Lord, then you must be born again. 
You need grace. You must confess your need for a Savior. You must confess your sins. You must believe in Jesus as the only Son of God who raised Himself from the tomb. You must confess Him as Savior and Lord. You need grace. And when you do this, you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit who will begin to work on you, changing that attitude from the inside out, changing us and growing us from the inside out, giving you a love for God and His Word that you can never experience on your own. You must not delay this calling to be saved. Give in to it today. When we begin this journey of treasuring God's Word, it's not like it's going to be like a Band-Aid and you're just going to immediately have this attitude adjustment. You may still have some attitudes you've got to work on. You've got to give it over to God daily. That's why it's so important that we spend time in prayer. That's why it's so important that we spend time in God's Word. You see, what often makes something a treasure to us is that we just spend time with it over and over and over again. Like that coffee cup. It's not the coffee. It's not the cup. It's the time we spend together. What time are you spending with God. We're going to have a time of response this morning, a time for you to respond back to His message, to His Word, to however the Holy Spirit might, might be speaking to you this morning. I'll be down front, Brother Kenneth will be as well, and, and uh, we'd, we'd love, to come, love for you to come down and, and, and uh, if there's any way we can pray for you. Please, please don't hesitate during this time of, uh, of music. It's your name. We pr- uh, Father, we thank you for this time. We thank you for this opportunity to pray. It's in your name we come because it is the most holy name and it is the name by which we are saved by. Lord, if there's any here this morning that never experienced that salvation, then Lord, we pray, Lord, that they would not hesitate anymore. Lord, they would begin, begin that process of understanding what it means to be born again. Their need for a Savior we need to respond to you, to believe in you, to confess you as Lord and Savior. Lord, we pray that each and every one of us this morning, myself included, would respond to you in obedience. It's in your name we pray, Jesus. Amen.